0: The reading is from Nehemiah chapter 12 verses 27 to 30 and chapter 13 verses 6 to 14 and is on page 498 of the Church Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 12 starting at verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem. To celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And moving to verse 6 of chapter 13. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into the the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant. Because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be-
1: We have a new gadget, and uh, I shall try to speak and work the PowerPoint at the same time, and we'll see how that goes. A slow, steady movement uh, from one place to another. That is, um, uh, that is one dec- uh, dictionary uh, definition of drift. And uh, spiritual drift, that is to say a slow drifting away from our spiritual moorings, Our spiritual good intentions is one of the great temptations that faces the community of faith, that faces us as a Christian community, and it's always been one of the great temptations that has faced the community of faith. And Nehemiah, I think, is a classic example of that. We're looking at chapters 12 and 13, and we really don't have time to... to, to go through it verse by verse, but if you read chapters 12 and 13, and the reading that we had from Anne gives you a little flavor of the flow of chapters 12 and 13, essentially what you see is um, the the, the fanfares of chapter 12 uh, giving way to the failures of chapter 13. So in chapter 12, essentially what you get is Nehemiah gathering the Levites, who were the priests, of course, and singers, choirs, musicians, to come together and to celebrate the dedication of the walls that have been built. Of course, that's the great theme of, one of the great themes of Nehemiah. They've been building these walls, and now comes the time to celebrate the building of the walls, and uh, uh, the choirs are collected and all the rest of it. And there's great fanfares. And then chapter 13 chronicles in many ways the drift away from the celebrations of chapter 12, the drift into uh, failure. After the dedication of the walls in chapter 12, in fact, we discover in chapter 13 that Nehemiah departs and he goes back to Persia to work for uh, the king again. And many years later, verse 6, he returns. And on his return, he discovers... That all the reforms and the reorganization and the restorations that he brought about have collapsed like a house of cards. His reforms to uh, the use of the temple, uh, the tithes that were supposed to be given by the people to keep the Levites, the priests, uh, ministering in the temple. uh, The use of the Sabbath that had been reinstituted, the right use of the Sabbath. Uh, the, the, The right godly ties and social relationships that have been reorganized and restored. All these things, as you go through chapter 13, you discover that on Nehemiah's return, he discovers that the people have relapsed. The people have drifted away. All those reforms have been undone. And in a sense, we find Nehemiah in chapter 13 having to begin again. It's been well said that the final scene to a film or to a play or to a book is the most significant. It's sort of your takeaway point. It's what frames the rest of the book or film or play that you've just seen. It is, for instance, the final scene of Romeo and Juliet that makes it a tragedy. And so it is with the final scene of Nehemiah, which, um, in fact, is the final scene of the Old Testament in many ways. And the final scene makes the book, if not a tragedy, it certainly makes it a disappointment. Because what we're left with is the distinct impression that the reforms of Nehemiah, like the reforms of every good reforming Old Testament king or priest or prophet or leader who God has raised up throughout uh, Israel's history, Those reforms have only brought another renewal of Israel that is, if you like, skin deep, that is tenuous and temporary, a reestablishment of God's will and ways that is precarious. Once Nehemiah leaves, it collapses. And so, as with the rest of the Old Testament, we're sort of left with a heavy heart. We're left with a disappointment and a longing for a leader that can bring about a different kind of renewal than all the previous Old Testament kings, priests, prophets, Nehemiah has been able to bring about. Bring about a renewal that can take a deeper root in the heart of his people and enable them to shine like stars and have a global significance because that was God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that he'd raise a people and they would shine like stars and have a global significance. Whereas Israel are still an insignificant corner of a global empire. They're under the Persians, of course, still at the moment, and soon they'll be under the Romans. We're left longing for a leader who can bring freedom from enemies uh, and the permanent establishment of God's presence and blessing in a way that previous leaders have not been able to do. And that, of course, is the point of Nehemiah that sense of longing, that sense of heavy-heartedness at the long-term failure of Nehemiah's reforms is precisely where Nehemiah wants to leave us. It's precisely where the Old Testament wants to leave us. It wants to leave us looking for and longing for the promised one that God has promised throughout the Old Testament who would bring about a long-term, deep renewal of God's people, who would bring about the permanent presence of God with his people, who would, in short, be able to establish the kingdom of God. When Jesus appears on the scene and begins his public ministry, he begins with these words from Mark uh, chapter 1 verse 15, you'll remember. He says, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he says that, what he's saying is, the waiting is now over. I am the answer to the longings of Israel. I am the one to establish a people in a way that Nehemiah could not, or indeed any of the Old Testament kings, priests, prophets. Paul puts it like this in Corinthians For no matter how many promises God has made in the Old Testament, they are yes in Christ. In other words, in Christ, here comes God's promise fulfiller. Here comes the one to establish God's permanent presence. Here comes the one to establish the rule and the blessing of his kingdom. Here comes the one who can create a people who can shine like stars globally, as it were. In other words, Jesus is saying, isn't he, I can bring about change where Nehemiah could really only bring about challenge. I can bring about renewal where Nehemiah really could only bring about reorganization. I can recreate a community. I can recreate a people. Nehemiah could sort of rebuild it, but he couldn't do much about the people he was rebuilding with, as it were. In other words, here comes one who can break that cycle that you see as you read your Old Testaments time and time and time and time again, that cycle of reform, repentance, renewal, drift into relapse. And then God raises up another leader, reform, repentance, relapse, uh, into, uh, drift into relapse. I can break that cycle. Jesus is God's antidote to his people's propensity to drift away. And that really, I think, is the key message for us this morning that we take from uh, Nehemiah 12 and 13, or it's one of them anyway. Jesus is able to build and keep a people in a way that Nehemiah could not. Jesus is God's antidote to the propensity to spiritual drift. And that means for us that we need Jesus, And we need the ongoing work of Jesus in our lives to keep us from drifting. Because just like Israel, we will be tempted to drift. A very interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this. He says, these things, and he's referring to the Old Testament, happen to them as examples of and were written down as warnings for us, Christians, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. It's very significant for us as we think about how to apply the Old Testament. Two things, in other words, uh, Paul is saying here. First, we live in a spiritually privileged time. We live in, as he puts it, the culmination of the ages. In other words, we live after the Christ, the promised one, has come. We now have the better king. Uh, we have the perfect sacrifice. We have uh, the great high priest. We live in a time in which God's spirit at Pentecost has been poured out. And now God permanently dwells in our hearts. So we have all that. The power of sin has been broken. But the presence of sin remains and the second point from this verse, therefore, is he's saying, look, as you look at the Old Testament and you see God's people being tempted and pulled, and as you see them being led into patterns of behavior, those are now still examples and warnings for us. Because we'll, we'll still fill that pull. We'll still fill that temptation. Those patterns of behavior, if we're not careful, are patterns of behavior that we will drift into and be caught in. So in particular this morning, we come back to this uh, particular example, a warning I think we get from Nehemiah 12 and 13, which is that temptation, that pull into spiritual uh, drift. That, I think, is a warning, an example for us. That idea of drift is interesting, isn't it? That great, the Bible says, that danger that we face, that temptation we face of drift. Is it not so often the case that, the greatest danger to us is not waking up one morning and walking into some cataclysmic um, disobedience or some cataclysmic loss of faith. The danger for us, I think, most of the time, is not that, but rather a sort of slow, steady, almost imperceptible drift from the Lord's. Uh, like a boat that's adrift upon the undercurrents beneath it. You fall asleep in the boat, you wake up, and suddenly you think, how did I get this far from shore? I think that's the great danger the Bible says faces us. It can be deadly on the water, and it, it can be damagingly eroding of our relationship with God. One day we can look up from the busyness of life and think, boy, how did I get here spiritually? I came across this when preparing uh, for this sermon. Well, uh, yes, essentially I came across this. Somebody had talked about some of the things that um, can lead to drift or or can underpin drift. And they used the acronym D-R-I-F-T. Very clever. And uh, I've slightly tweaked R and I. But essentially, um, I got this from somebody else. Uh, There's a disclosure. Disclosure. Um, but they made the point uh, that, uh, so they used the language of uh, deed, distraction. Very helpful. Absolutely right, isn't it? So the point was, you don't start out necessarily with some grand disobedience. Rather, drift usually comes because of ongoing distraction with other things, you know? Uh, we, we begin to drift when we allow all the good things, and they're often good things that God has given us, uh, you know, friends or family or uh, influence or job or whatever it might be, when we begin to allow those things to distract us fundamentally, to fill our vision, to become our priority, and they suddenly start to, yeah, to fill our vision, and we, we drift towards them. Our, um I've called this one refusal, and by which I mean refusal to recognize the current that we're in. So one of the great dangers, one writer said this, that... The world is not a lake, it's a river pulling us away from uh, obedience to Christ. The point being that drift can happen when we think you know what, if I don't particularly focus on Christ and Christian things, if I put my feet up, you know, it's, it, the world is like the Dead Sea. You know, I can, I can, I can lie on it and it will support me and I'll, you know, close my eyes and I'll open my eyes and I'll be in exactly the same place as I was when I closed them. And the writer says, actually, no, the world's not like the Dead Sea. It's not like a lake. It's like a river. We're always being pulled away from obedience to Christ. And if we're not aware, uh, aware of that, we'll drift on the undercurrents of our culture. And actually, we need to be active. We need to be swimming the other way or rowing the other way. I, indifference. Drift often happens when we become, you know, slightly indifferent to small acts of, of, again, not the big acts of, you know, but the small acts of corner cutting in our discipleship, you know. I haven't been for a couple of months, but that's okay. You know, I'll go next month, whatever it is. Indifference can often mark the, the life of Drift. Uh, F, fake fellowship. You know, we, 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 we start coming to church uh, with the masks on and we don't, uh, we're not honest with one another, we're not honest with our small group or our accountability group or whoever it might be um, and we stop relying on God's, one of God's means of keeping us from drifting which is me and you, God has given us each other to help us when we're drifting, to jump in each other's boats, if that's not mixing the metaphor too much, and to sort of uh, row, uh, to help us row. That probably isn't mixing the metaphor too much, but you know what I mean. God has given us each other to help us uh, from drifting. And finally, T, here's the key one, I suppose, that tendency to treasure something uh, or someone more than Jesus. As we do that, as we start to treasure something, as we start to think that this thing actually is the most important thing in life because it offers me life, then, of course, we'll drift towards it and away from Christ. So the question for us, and one of the things that I've thought about um, and, in fact, done um, in preparation for this, um, and indeed I was speaking a little bit about this with the evening congregation a few weeks ago, is I was asking myself when I prepared this, when was the last time I actually stopped, because life is so busy, and did a bit of a spiritual health check. I've never done one of these before. Um, but I, I came across a couple. The one on the top left is Every Day with Jesus by CWR. The one on the bottom right is by New Wine. But there's lots of them. Those two were quite good. They just, they just ask questions. There's nothing magical about them. All they do is make you pause in the busyness of life and take stock. You know, like if you're in a boat and look up and think, actually, where am I? They, they, they help you to take spiritual bearings. They just ask good questions that help us to identify, am I drifting? If so, in what way am I drifting? Uh, and that, and of course, once you've got that, you can begin to think, okay, how do I address that? I found it a um, very helpful exercise to do, and uh, it, it, it alerted me to a couple of things, uh, which I'm, uh, by God's grace, trying to uh, address and with uh, having mentioned it to one or two folk, well, in fact, I mentioned it to the entire 6 o'clock congregation, what it was that I was drifting on and needed their help with. So um, it's very helpful, I think, when you identify something, to mention it to someone in your small group or your accountability group because having others to help us is a good thing. But it, it just allows us to get a sense of where we're at spiritually, and the new year is a great time to do that. Are we drifting? And if so, to address it. How do we address it? We address it... The whole point, of course, of Nehemiah 12, 13, and the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the antidote that God gave against spiritual drift. The drift of his people then, the drift of his people now. We need to keep relying on Jesus if we're not to drift. Here's a quote that I thought was quite helpful. Uh, Well, Yes, very helpful. (laughs) That's the Bible. Um, That's particularly... (laughs) Uh, There we are. I'm out of order. Uh, Fix our eyes on Jesus, says the writer of the Hebrews, uh, the author and perfecter of our faith. He perfects our faith. He stops us from drifting as we fix our eyes on him. That is the quote that I thought was um, quite helpful. Uh, The Christian life is first and foremost a life of contemplation. Listening to Jesus, considering Jesus, fixing the eyes of our heart on Jesus, everything else grows out of that. You know, you drift towards what your eyes are fixed on. So fix your eyes on Jesus. And the point is, we have in Jesus all the spiritual resources we need to stop us from drifting. It's quite an interesting exercise. I can only do a couple with the time I've got. To go back and look at sort of some the reforms of Nehemiah and see how Jesus fulfills them. To see how he is the bigger and better version of what they got in, in, in the book of Nehemiah. For instance, they got in Ezra and Nehemiah a, a new temple and new city walls, new security. Jesus comes, of course, but they were only in brick. They were still, they, they were still subject to destruction. And, of course, we know that, that they will be destroyed by the Romans. Jesus comes as the new temple in his body. He comes as the one who gives us security from our enemies, from sin, Satan, and death. And he's now sitting in heaven. He is untouchable. He can't be destroyed. He can't be defiled. He is always there, permanent and present with us. In Nehemiah, they had the scriptures reread to them. That was a great thing. In Jesus, we get them written on our hearts. We get a new heart softened to them. We get the spirit who now indwells us at Pentecost and enables us to keep that word in faithfulness. As I said, uh, when as you read chapters 12 and 13, it's as Nehemiah leaves that the people drift into relapse well jesus never leaves he pours out his spirit at pentecost precisely for that reason we have him uh, indwelling in our hearts by his empowering uh, holy spirit we always have him now equipping us and empowering us in our tasks of faithfulness jesus is the bigger and better nehemiah we have all the spiritual resources in him we need to fight drift so the question then, as we close, is what are we fixing our eyes on? And that reminder to uh, to fix our eyes on Jesus. All of God's promises are yes in Jesus. He's going to give us everything we need to fight that drift that we will always feel tempted, pulled uh, by and towards. One of the I often ask myself a series of questions when I think that I'm drifting towards something, or something has has, has grown perhaps too much insignificance or, or is filling too much of my vision in a way that's unhelpful and might be causing me to drift a little bit, I often ask myself these questions. You, 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 you put Christ alongside the thing that we think might be causing us to drift or having too big a place in our hearts and minds. And we ask ourselves the question, will this thing that is competing with Christ bring me more freedom than Jesus does? Will it make me more human than Jesus does, renew and change me more than Jesus does? Will it bring me a greater security than uh, Jesus does? Is it more gracious and forgiving than Jesus is? Um, did it die for me? Always an interesting one. so often those things that we drift towards actually will, will crush us. Um, will make us sort of lay our lives down for it, Uh, whereas Jesus lays his life down for us. I think questions like that help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, compare them with the thing that is growing too large. And when we do that, we find Jesus is the greatest Savior. See, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we delight in him as the greatest Savior, the greater treasure than anything else we might drift towards. And that, I think, is how Jesus keeps us from drifting. By delighting us more than the thing towards which we might drift. By showing us in himself that he is the treasure that our hearts long for and look for and need. So as we finish, that is the challenge, isn't it, this year, to fix our eyes on Jesus, And as we do that, we'll find him to be a delight. And as we find him delightful, so he will continue to draw our eyes and our hearts and therefore our lives towards him. And that is the antidote to spiritual drift. God give us the grace so to do. Amen.